This episode, we discuss birth trauma and birth injury, which may be triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Bitching and Bolusing podcast with Courtney and Brittany. for tuning in to the Bitching and Bolusing podcast. I'm Brittany. And I'm Courtney. And today we have Jen on the show. Jen is a loving full-time mother who holds a master's degree of social work with over a decade of experience working as a therapist. Jen's entrance into motherhood was a bit traumatic and unexpected. Uh, Not only did she have to navigate the birth of her son, but she also had to navigate life inside the walls of a NICU. After three months in NICU, Jen was able to take her son home, but although she had to learn how to master the complications that come with medical complexities, she's done it with grace and has created a safe space for other NICU families. When she's not caring for her son, she is providing positive affirmations, information, and resources to families who are navigating similar traumatic NICU experiences that she has had. We appreciate you being here on the show with us today, Jen, and we're so excited to chat. How are you, my dear? Thank you for having me. I love this opportunity. I'm great. (laughs) So I wanted to really kind of jump right into the NICU experience because I know that Mm -hmm. that has really defined your journey so far Mm -hmm. uh, into motherhood and how it relates to also your background in social work. Um, Particularly, I was scouring your Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) I was Instagram stalking you a little. (laughs) And uh, I did read one of your posts where you talked very briefly in a description of a post how you felt your background in social work really helped guide you and navigate you through your NICU experience. Mm -hmm. You want to talk a little bit more about how that did affect your NICU experience? Yeah. So it's a little twofold because I'd say it has helped in the advocacy round and really um, asking for what I need. And, you know, unfortunately, I had the three months I was there, I asked to have support from the social work department, the social work team. Never once did I meet with the social work team. Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. It was a revolving door. I was able to get all of my resources. I was asking for NICU support groups and education and just things. And even just asking for those things is a big step. You don't know what you don't know. And so I was really in that frame of, I need to feel empowered going through this. And I honestly got all my resources through the NICU nurses at the hospital. And I'm like, it's not their job to give those resources. Like they're busy keeping your baby alive. (laughs) Um, So I was really... um, it's easy to critique the field that you're in when you, cause I've done hospital social work and school social work. So I think emotionally though, it was very, um, you know, I have a great support network, a great, uh, a close knit family, my girlfriends, a lot of support in that realm, but I guess boundaries were really hard and allowing grace. And as moms, we get into that really easy shame and guilt spiral cycle And I remember like I was there every single day for three months, (laughs) hours on end. And essentially that was my whole maternity leave. And, 
you know, even for like breastfeed, we couldn't breastfeed, but pumping, I, when I got home from the hospital, I would pump every three hours of the night because I'm like, this is what feels normal. If he was home with me, this is what I would be doing anyway. So it was like this weird way to like bond and connect and, and be sleep deprived, even though he wasn't home. And I remember like, you know, I had family that came to into town out from out of state around his his due date, and I remember feeling guilty about going to see a movie or going to a pumpkin patch or doing all this thing. I'm like, if he was here, if he was home, I wouldn't be able to go see a movie. So it was like yeah. that self deprecating, like sacrificial thing that you didn't need to do, but it almost made you feel better. <laughs> it's just yeah. a weird kind of. So those a lot of those mental things, and I just had a conversation with another NICU mom of like you don't get a medal for going to the NICU every day like you can take a break from the NICU and I that didn't register for me yeah and one of the hardest parts that I was kicking myself that I had to really process my husband is after the g-tube surgery because I'm like you know what if you were in surgery and if you were recovering as an adult I would be at your bedside overnight I'd be sleeping in the hospital with you and it felt so weird after a surgery to be going home after that like I had been there like eight plus hours in the day so as therapists we're trained to hold kind of other people's stories and and the trauma and you know you're kind of separated from that and you kind of know what you know but it's such a different experience firsthand going through it yourself and how you react and respond and kind of looking internally for that those things yeah it's not easy to have so much perspective when you're the person mm-hmm. involved mm-hmm. in in a yeah. traumatic experience at all and actually the education piece like of my education it's a lot of like child development trauma birth to five and how important that you know time is and bonding and it almost made me feel worse knowing how important brain development and like the attachment and knowing I couldn't be there around the clock for him and with him and then like you know abuse and neglect kids they their brain chemistry changes and you know if you don't get that nurture type from a caregiver and so I'd sit in the NICU and I'd sometimes hear babies cry and cry and cry and nobody's there to and I was was like if I'm gone is that happening to Luca like so it's twofold it it was empowering to know some but then you know I, I wasn't specialized or you know in depth knowledge of the actual experience itself so NICU is such a strange and terrifying place yeah it's a <laughs> on mind so fuck. many levels <laughs> yeah it's a mind fuck <laughs> like, yeah. you know, shit. I'm honestly even like a little bit jittery every time I hear somebody else's NICU experience it just brings me right right back, back. It really does. And it's so crazy. And and we had a really interesting NICU experience because Oddly enough, despite not knowing what was going to happen during my labor and delivery, when I asked my sister, who's a, she's actually a family doctor. She's a pediatrician and internal meds physician. Mm -hmm. When I asked her like, Hey, what hospital should I birth at? (laughs) She was like, Hey, you really need a hospital with the highest level NICU. And I was Mm -hmm. like, why? Mm. says who you know you don't expect to go through that (laughs) but I went with her suggestion anyway and I chose a hospital that had the highest level NICU but I also Mm. happened to choose a hospital that had a newly built NICU so the whole building Mm. was completely brand new it was barely a year old and because of that they had these family suites 
So they had these two full on suites. They were like hotel rooms that you could live in the NICU while your child is there. What? Yes. Sounds amazing, right? Wow. And it was quite nice. But by day seven, I had not left that NICU. (laughs) I lived there for seven days, me and my husband. He would go out and like grab us food, but I Mm -hmm. literally Mm -hmm. only left the hospital for like one hour and I went to grab a bagel once. By day seven, I actually almost passed out. And the nurses were like, you need to get the fuck out of here. And they were so right. Because as much as, trust me, I know you guys probably felt this when you were leaving and then coming back, you felt this like loss of like, how can I not be there every second of the day? From experience, it's actually a little bit more traumatizing to be there every second of the day and not have any sort of outside experience or outside exposure to talk to yeah. just people and to just have a little mm-hmm. bit of normalcy. And life goes on outside of the NICU. It like, does. Your life continues. And, yeah. But when you're in there, you're like trapped in this alternate universe. It's mm-hmm. so wild. And I, I remember the first day I came home and I like showered and slept for like four hours and I was like what the hell is happening but I still ran back like right back but it really it was such a I don't know how to explain it because obviously I was super happy to be there he was barely like 20 feet from us like his room was his pod was really that close and and because we were there they let us go at any point there was never a restriction on access to him Mm -hmm. so if at two in the morning I couldn't sleep Mm -hmm. I could go and just sit next to him and from that perspective I will never say that it was a bad thing but mentally it was a little even more of a mind fuck because I was like holy shit I like this is my world now Nikki is my whole planet and that's not healthy either yeah. yeah, I appreciate nurses that say to take breaks because <laughs> yeah. I forget to yeah. eat. Like you're yes. just there, and then it's the balance of like, well, your kid has to rest. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you only interact with them during cares, but it's harder when they get a little bit older in the NICU and they're kind of bored or they are seeking that. But yeah, no, I was. We were only in the NICU for eleven days, which felt like forever but we didn't have any like ensuite they had a a little fold-out couch inside the the NICU room and I remember the only time I came home to sleep was on day three so they were gonna warm Cyrus up but because he got started later with cooling they ended up going an extra day with us so they were like we're not gonna warm him up tonight there's no need for you to be here he's just gonna be where he's at I had just gotten discharged and so they were like just go home I went home and I had so much anxiety. Like, I remember waking up and I remember going into the bathroom and kind of, like, taking a good look at myself in the mirror and breaking down. Like, I remember just, like, hysterically crying because I had all the battle scars Mm -hmm. (laughs) of giving birth. And I did. I mean, like, I I tore during my birth and all this. And I had all the battle scars. And I was home alone without my baby. And... After that, I was like, I'm not leaving this room. And my husband and I, we had this little tiny fold-out couch. And it was like, you know, like your sleepover when you're in high school with your girlfriends. And it's like one was this way and the other was the opposite way. And we're like (laughs) squeezed on this little couch. And we didn't have a, a private bathroom at all. We had a shared bathroom with everyone else on the floor. And we did have a social worker that came in and and thankfully she was like, hey, there is a Ronald McDonald's house right across the street. Like, at least get a room and go shower. If you don't sleep there, that's fine. But like, 
go use the bathroom, go shower, change your clothes. You can put all of your stuff there. So this tiny little room isn't even more cramped with crap. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And we did. And yeah, there were, there was like one time that the nurse was like, you gotta go, you gotta go. (laughs) You guys gotta go eat. Like he's sleeping. Just go up the street, go have a bite to eat. And we did. And I don't know if I just had such severe PTSD, but my anxiety, I I felt every fiber in my body hyperventilating that I had to get back to that room. And it was the invasive thoughts of like, I'm not there right now. And this Mm -hmm. is the moment my baby's Mm going to die. And it was terrifying. I had a lot of anxiety around and my husband was so chill about it. But for care, so we had a 30 minute commute. But by the time you find parking, you get to the hospital, you wait for the elevator. I'd call the nurse on the way be like, I'm on my way. Like, don't start mm-hmm. without me. I can do care. like, and just the, the anxiety of getting to the hospital and doing cares and being late. Like, oh. you also talked about how as a social worker, the advocacy part was strongly affected in a good way when you were in the NICU because you you learned how to advocate and you learned mm-hmm. that you walked into an experience where you knew specific questions to ask, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And this is something that uh, Brittany and I have touched on before, but it's also something that has always stuck with me from uh, our main support group, which is Hope for HIE. If you've never heard of it, it's, it's essentially the main support group for... <laughs> across the whole globe for hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And one of their target campaigns is always kind of trying to help bring resources to support NICU. And from them is when I started to realize and reevaluate my experience in NICU, how there really wasn't resources for, Mm -hmm. especially in our case, for full-term babies, because NICU is just Mm -hmm. so heavily focused on preemies. But NICU is for all neonatal, right? So it's not just preemies. And they have such a huge focus on this. And I'm curious what insights or recommendations you would give now that you have the lived experience of being a social worker prior and then being a social worker during a NICU stay, what would you recommend could help uh, NICUs and other support staff in NICUs support parents? Honestly, I... It's so isolating in the NICU, and I might get teary-eyed. I was there three months and never once connected with another mom. And Mm. granted, it was kind of the COVID and only, you know, immediate parents could go. There was one mom that ended up being my NICU neighbor, and I got her number, and we still chat to this day. And it's so isolating as it is because you're so in it. But even just being able to connect with moms in there or saying hello, especially there day in and day out, you know, just being able to say hi, like, how are you doing? That goes such a long way. I'd say don't be afraid to ask questions. Uh, For me, one of the hardest things that I kick myself today is like, I didn't know it was okay to ask to hold my baby. Mm. I didn't hold my baby. I didn't know that either. No, neither did I. (laughs) It was eight days until I could do skin to skin. And he still had, he was intubated and had all the stuff. But, you know, I asked the nurses, I asked to see the social work team, I wanted, you know, the NICU support resources online. The one that I use that was really helpful that even just the advocacy piece, um, Hand to Hold is based in Texas. And 
you know, they have one-on-ones and support. And the first one I went to, it ended up being just the facilitator and me. And she was more like a parent mentor that had gone through it. And one of the things I learned was you can ask for a primary nurse to follow you for day shift and night shift. And so being there for three months, I continually, once I learned that maybe halfway through, and it's good for the babies to have the same consistent caregiver in the NICU. And so I... I think the things that empowered me for the advocacy is like, this is your baby, even though it might not feel it because nurses are taking care of it. Like, you know, your baby best and that instinct and that gut feeling that you have, if something doesn't feel right, if you're confused about something, like they're going to be your baby when you go home, (laughs) like the full range and, and you have that bond and that connection. So I don't know if that answers the question, but the advocacy piece, I think just asking questions, trying to connect or just say hello, you know, in the NICU bubble and ask for what you need. I think that that's really important because if I had heard that when I was in the NICU, it would have helped a lot because I very specifically remember sitting there and thinking, what's my place? Because I'm watching everybody else Mm -hmm. care for my baby and I knew I didn't even have to be there. And that's not an experience that any typical mother has to go through if they just bring their baby home like you're there and if you're not there then your baby's not thriving or surviving and so it was really 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 difficult (laughs) and I wasn't able to hold Cyrus he was on cooling so Courtney I don't know if you had a similar experience but they didn't want Mm -hmm. him touched the entire time that he was on cooling the last day that he was supposed to be warmed and he wasn't I was a disaster I was just like I thought it would be the day I'd hold my baby and I wasn't and I remember Tina the nurse that we had it's like she's an angel to me and I came in the room and she was like sit your ass in the chair we're putting this baby in your lap right now And they put a pillow down and they picked him up and he was all wrapped in the cooling blankets and he had the, the, I think he had a helmet, like a cooling headpiece on and they like all the wires and they took him and they put him in my lap and it was like, he was right there. And and I always laugh, but that's our first family portrait. (laughs) It's like me and Kyle in the NICU. And if I heard that and heard that I could ask for things and you don't know what you don't know. And thank God for the nurses that offer that. Like, do you want to hold your baby? It hadn't even crossed my mind that I could because they always in the beginning, especially when they're not that stable, it's the safe hold. It's the cupping the the feet for the womb, like, you know, and no other moms apart from NICU have the special, like, I can actually just touch my baby. I can hold my baby's hand. I do tell, I tell all of my friends that, not that I have many, but like I've had a couple friends that have done the NICU experience. And now, since I've gone through it, I always tell them, I'm like, ask to do everything. Ask to be involved in feeds if your baby has a feeding tube. Ask to do baths. I love baths. Ask to change diapers. We never had a nurse that said no. I remember once he was warmed up, once he was stable, once he was breastfeeding, it was a lot of, I wanted to be more involved. So even taking his his body temperature because he struggled with maintaining his body temperature after he was warmed, which is typical. And they were like, no, go ahead, take his temperature, do it twice and, you know, write it down and you can weigh his diaper and you can, and I was like, what? I didn't know I could do this. The independence. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Like, 
feeling responsible, which is great. The NICU is not a place for type A people. <laughs> like, you cannot plan for anything. Yeah. You can't yeah. plan when you're going to take them home. You can't plan for, you know, and it's it's all so up in the air. And so I remember just my motto was the, the one day at a time, just one day at a time. Yeah. And for the advocacy piece of speaking for what you need or what you want, we had the Ronald rooms. It could only hold one parent. It was a little twin size bed, a floor above. I did that stay two or three times in the hospital. So they'd call it a breastfeeding or bottle feeding challenge where you could be in a room for, you know, 72 hours and go down for all the cares or skip one care and sleep through the night and try to really practice bottling in preps to hopefully come home. We did that. Yeah. Three, two or three times, but I had to ask for that, like ask for a room when it would be open. When could I get scheduled, prepare for my husband to be alone with the in-laws. And, and, you know, I think the hardest part is leaving the NICU without your baby. And it was one of those things I advocated for because I, I wanted that time and wanted to try to see if we could, we could bottle and, and build his comp, my confidence with him, but his practice with it. And so even just the prepared, like you can have all the tools and that's, I think what I've learned the most too, especially with the feeding and the milestones and all that stuff. Like it's on the baby's timeline. Like we as parents have these expectations and that's not fair to a baby that's been through all this trauma and their body remembers. And it's like, we have to give up again, that type A, that control of like our expectations that we want that and even if it's in their best interest like we want our kids to eat like we want them to enjoy food but if they're not safe doing it if they can't swallow yet if they're adjusted age and they're not ready even though mentally like we've been with them that long it's just it's not fair for us to have failed expectations and that loss of hope and then that kind of that resentment on your child that like you know you should be doing this and then that comparison of like other kids are are doing these. Why can't my child do this? And so I've that's been you know the advocacy piece on the outside of NICU, yeah. you know scheduling medical appointments, all the different resources, early intervention, all the therapies, like navigating all of those, and then knowing full swing, but also taking a break. If you're going on vacation, don't schedule. Like take a break. You can burn out with that too. And I've learned that <laughs> balance too. But the biggest thing I've had to do is just let go of that control. And once I have let go, it makes our relationship more enjoyable. It takes the pressure off him. And he can sense that, especially feeding in the beginning, like bottles when we first got home, he was just, it got negative. And it's always, especially feeding has to come from a place of this positive family experience, whether he's eating or not. The pressures of feeding from medical professionals is so overwhelming and unnatural they like never calculate or put into thought how a neurotypical able-bodied child just eats it is an ebb and a flow when I watch how Luca my my youngest has developed in terms of feeding from birth to now and I think about the really strict restrictions and expectations they put on Lino and that I put on Lino because they were putting it on Lino. Mm -hmm. It was like we were all just throwing all these expectations at Lino. It's so unnatural. 
Like it's so unnatural to demand that a child eat a certain amount of ounces every certain amount of hours. That is unnatural. It doesn't work like that. The G-tube's unnatural in itself. Like missing that whole process. That's the G-tube's a mind fuck. (laughs) Like it's such a medical, it's not natural. And it's such this medical. And so my husband and I have gone back and forth of like, I'd have anxiety if we went three and a half hours or four hours because we had an appointment. I'm like, we got to get home. We got to feed him. What if he's hungry? Yes. He's not showing those cues. Yeah. And like, yes. I got to keep him alive. He's He's got to eat. And we balance each other out pretty well. But <laughs> <laughs> it's stressful. So it's so accurate, though. It's so accurate. It's like anytime that we leave the house, because we're kind of like in the middle of nowhere. So even to just like get to the city is a little bit of a hike. But even just to go out, it's like, so much preparation just to be like do we have feeds do we have enough water are we going to be able to do this and then with Alden I'm just like just throw in a pouch he's fine (laughs) and I'm like this is it's crazy the the difference and and I find that feeding is the one thing that I'm constantly stressed about yeah Um, yeah. even if like my husband goes out and he's like oh I'm gonna take the boys to my mom I'm like make sure you have everything is the pump charged (laughs) like you know and then it's like what if it dies well I mean we listen. We've skipped meals for Cyrus before, either like with time constraints or he just wasn't tolerating it. And anytime he gets sick, I mean, we cut way back on his feed. Sick kid's not gonna die from one yeah. skipped meal, but it feels like it. They've made it feel that way though yes. in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. made me feel like he was going to die. And at the same rate, we're also, we were late to the G-tube game in terms of Lino didn't come out of NICU with any feeding tube. Mm. So we came home and, yeah, that's right. So both Cyrus and Lino got their G-tubes later in life. Lino did start with an an NG tube, but regardless, Mm. it was a situation where all that pressure was on me and my husband as parents to ensure our child was thriving by eating and he wasn't, he was failure to thrive. And we were constantly doing weigh-ins every two to three days and it was chaos. And honestly, our first medical team was fucking awful. (laughs) It was the worst and they just weren't helpful. And we went months where the kid was not eating. So it was just, it was feeding is such a stressful journey. It seems like something that is so simple. You think, okay, well, feeding a child and it is, holy shit, is it not? And I am still traumatized to this day. I have such PTSD when it comes to anything related to feeding. And I do project that onto Luca Mm -hmm. unintentionally. And I fight this all the time with my husband because even my husband still does it. Well, he'll be like, well, Luca hasn't eaten in three hours. All right. But he'll tell us when he wants to eat. He goes around signing eat, you know, like he's not just going to sit in a corner and like starve himself to death. But we have so much trauma regarding it and we just carry it and we project it everywhere. It's it's awful. The schedule of it. I mean, we're still, we're doing six feeds a day and his bedtime, his last one's around 7, 7 And we have to wake him up around 10, 10 for that last one. And I feel so bad. Like a normal kid would be sleeping at bedtime yeah. sleeping through the night our story is a little different for in order for him to be discharged he had to have the g2 mm. um, because he was so inconsistent so 
that's a blessing in that I didn't have to stress when we got home. It kind of took the pressure off of that. But even going home, like they never told us or taught us how to vent the tube before a feed. So when we got home months later, he would just be wailing, crying because he had all this trapped air. And now that he's older, he has all the reflux still. And just like the trauma that his little body's going through of like, you're trying to eat and then the association of like a full tummy and I'm vomiting. And it's such trial and error because it's like, okay, is it constipation? Is it sickness? Is it too much volume? Is he still full from the last feed? Like... It's so much to navigate. (laughs) And I want to say it takes like a lot of courage and bravery, not just with the outside medical professionals, but within yourself once you kind of start getting the hang of it. And then you go like, well, maybe I could experiment. Maybe I can do this on my own. I mean, the the amount of things that we've adjusted and changed for Mm -hmm. Cyrus since he got his G-tube is just obnoxious. I mean, it's constant trial and error, but we're in a good spot now. It was almost like, I remember the first time that we kind of started adjusting things, Cyrus was getting four feeds a day. He was getting a feed really late at night. And I was like, this just isn't working. We need to bring this to three feeds a day. So we adjusted it to what worked best for his body and what worked best for our family too, because Mm -hmm. there's also that whole aspect. And I remember like, they were like, wait, what? (laughs) What? You did what? (laughs) You need our permission first. (laughs) And I was like, I don't need anyone's permission to, to feed my kid. If he's healthy, if he's thriving, if his weight's looking good, if, you know, his, his blood work's looking good, like, why do I need permission to feed my kid? And because there's this whole medical aspect of, well, it's it's a medical device. It is a medical device. And because yeah. of that, you're taught that you need permission to feed your kid. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the NICU stuff, right? Yeah. Where it's like this whole going against the instinct of doing something as primal and basic as feeding your child. And then the power dynamic of it. Yeah. Like they... Providers don't encourage your own independence with it. No. And then having to run things by. It's almost like that NICU experience of like having to ask permission to hold your kid versus Mm -hmm. being on the outside, still having these medical providers over you, having to ask permission to do these things. It starts to extinguish what you were saying earlier, Jen, that natural instinct where, you know, you really do have to trust your gut. Uh, Me and Brittany are huge advocates when it comes to feeding and, and this is not just the blended food advocacy part of it either. I know a lot of our followers know all about our blended food uh, advocacy, but you have to trust your gut. And so many times we lean on medical professionals because we don't trust that. Yeah. Brittany is saying how she just kind of adjusted things for Cyrus. I have done that so many times with Lino. And every time I adjust it based on my gut, mm-hmm. it always works to his benefit. Yeah, it might it still need some tweaking, meaning like that initial change might be not, might not do the trick. I might still have to tweak it a little bit, but just following that gut response of like something's not right. Either it's too many meals in a day or it's too much volume, whatever the case is. You really do have to on some level trust your gut. And obviously, I don't mean push the boundaries too far if your child has a medical condition that requires a specific diet and a specific feeding regimen. I'm not saying question that if the medicine is saying like, this is what your child Mm -hmm. needs in order to survive. I'm not saying that. But if that's not the case, and there is no true medical reason for your child to just be on a formula when he's seven years old, you have to really trust that instinct. 
you know, to be like, well, if my seven-year-old wasn't disabled, would my seven-year-old still be having formula? (laughs) You know, like you have to trust those things. But so we, we do, we get that gut instinct really is diminished in, in a lot of ways, how the medical community will receive those questions if we ask them too much. Sometimes I just don't ask. I don't either. Mm-hmm. And I think being in the NICU every single day, you become accustomed to the medical piece. Whereas my husband, he still had to go to work. So he would come when he could, but it was on weekends, mostly in holidays. But like, he's very empowered. He's it, we again, we balance each other because even now I'm like, well, if we want to get rid of that six feed, we should ask ask if that's okay. (laughs) Like, I don't want to lose. That's a lot of volume to lose. And especially if he didn't gain weight this last week, like I don't want to make any changes without. And so I'm still very like, I want the okay versus my husband's like, he's very in tune with him, his instincts. And he's like, we don't need to ask permission. So that's something I still need to get (laughs) comfortable with. So Jen, I know you've mentioned a little bit earlier how you are so thankful for the support system you have through your friends and families, but I did want to talk a little bit about the Miracle Kid Network. And although you have support from friends and families, you obviously needed support elsewhere as well, which seems to be the guiding light that led you to create the Miracle Kid Network. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I would love to. And so I created this on Mother's Day and we're new to New Mexico. We don't have really a community built here. We've been here two years and all my friends are on the West Coast. All of our outings are all just doctor's appointments. And now he's almost reaching a year. I'm like, I I want him to start meeting other kids. We need some social interaction outside of doctor's appointments. And I need some connection with moms that are medical moms that have gone through a NICU experience. Because again, my friends can be supportive, but you don't know unless you've gone through it and can connect on that way. And so on Mother's Day, I'm like, I, we have a really great, um, park near us and it's the probably the best in the state and so I'm like I'm gonna start this group because again in my community when I was in the NICU there was nothing there were no in-person support groups even you know being discharged from the NICU back home it's so isolating yeah Miracle Kids Parent Support Network the original OG idea was you know local community play groups um having it all all ages of, of kids siblings of kids meeting in a park and we're still kind of determining if it's going to be a weekly or monthly um we've had two one so far and one other family came and she lives right down the road from me the facebook group is really for um private local families that you know are are either in the NICU coming freshly out of I've had a lot of our EI providers even our hearing institute um that I've kind of shared this with um it's also good for me that I'm not used to working like it's it's a big sh- identity shift to go from full on motherhood, but also now staying at home with my kiddo and all the demands and missing that I, the socialization and an adult connection and not yeah. being a therapist anymore and and that's a big shift and so it's like a passion project now for me to be able to to meet other families and the Instagram is more for the kind of the parent support resources the inspirational stuff of like these are things I wish I would have heard when I was going through that 
Oh, yeah. I love the Instagram. Like, yeah, I'm not even I in do. the NICU anymore with Cyrus, and some of your posts, I'm just like, yeah. I get scary-eyed, <laughs> and I'm like, I wish I saw this Instagram when I we were in the NICU, because it's so, it's so validating, and it's, it, ugh, just to, like, help parents, especially moms, like, be a little bit softer on themselves. Oh, for sure. It's so easy to come up with this content because it's like, that's what I was going through. That's what I was experiencing. Like that's, and now being on the outside, you know, we've been home for nine months and hope be a year next month. And, you know, it's a lot easier to have that kind of perspective. And that's the thing is that it's so like, oh man, I really wish that there were something local. And maybe there is, and, and maybe there's just not enough platform for me yeah. to know about it. But at Napa, I have been hounding them to create like a once a month or every other month and I've been like you guys need to create a play group like just like we'll pay some therapists you know and we'll go to a playground and like parents can just come together and then kids with similar abilities can all come together and like the therapists can help and the parents can mingle and this and that and it's beneficial for the parents but it's also beneficial to the kids to see kids like them because even like I had a friend fly out of state to come visit and she brought her one-year-old and granted Luca was 10 months adjusted like they're similar in age but with the adjusted it's a few months and like I had to mentally, mentally and emotionally prepare myself to not compare where they're at. And like, I couldn't even go down that road. And I think with Miracle Kids and the playgroup, like it kind of takes that component all out of it, you know? And it's so good for the kids. Cyrus loves when he gets co-treatments with, you know, other kids with disabilities like him. He gets so excited because he doesn't have anyone like that at school in his class specifically and so for him to be like you use a wheelchair I use a wheelchair this is so cool normalizes yeah or like see somebody in a gate trainer and he's in a gate trainer and all of a sudden they're running down the halls together and they're gate trainers it's like he he lights up and he loves it and it's so important and when those resources aren't available to these kids and these parents it's harmful for the parents, but even more so, it's really harmful for these kids. Yeah, it's harmful for the whole family. I remember when we got Cyrus and Lino together for the first time up in Boston at the aquarium, and the way they would, like, look at each other was, like, they were just like, dude, there's, like, fish over there. It's awesome. <laughs> you know? Like, and just to see that, because you, we, unfortunately, prior to school, I can count on one hand how many times Lino has had quote unquote play dates because I, no, I yeah, some of them yeah. I won't even call play dates because they really were just more like he was near another child who was <laughs> disabled or not disabled for that matter. Yep. Um, I think, you know, Brittany makes a good point. There might be places in our states, even very close to us, but there is this problem where there there's not enough information and resources out there to even know yeah yeah it's so small knit and like we have play groups for our um deaf and hearing aid community but that's just that specific niche so what I like about ours is it's all encompassing of medical it's not just a specific thing and I think as a mom in her 30s (laughs) it's hard to meet if you're not working like Mm -hmm. usually our friends are made from high school college you know in our community or churches wherever but when you're staying at home you're isolated it's so as a mom it's hard to meet 
other people. It's hard to meet friends. And then yeah. if your your child who has medical can do intramural sports teams, I struggle with the idea of like a daycare because again, the advocacy of is there going to be a nurse? Do I even trust somebody else to do his G- G2 yeah. feeds if he's still on G2 feeds? And so I, yeah, it really opens opportunities to be able to have those kids that maybe were secluded from other opportunities have had a place. And now you also mentioned how like the Instagram account is a little bit more resource-based since the group itself is more local. What are some of the resources that you put out there and supply to, to caregivers and parents? Yeah, so it's kind of twofold. Some of them are specific to NICU, parents going through it right now. So like I mentioned, Hand to Hold was a big one that I used. Um, there's some Zoom parent support groups and even some of those NICU groups have specific um, support groups for like NICU dads or you know parents of color that can join and have their experience shared Um, so you know a lot of those and then a lot of the educational stuff are like um, I follow this one great PT in Texas and she you know does a lot of adjusted age and just specific therapy movements you can do for like cross Crawling, sitting up, rolling, um, activities for your kids when they're, you know, home from the NICU or have low tone or um, torticollis was a big one for us too. So um, it's kind of twofold NICU and then a lot of the different therapies, a lot of feeding therapy pages I follow that I reshare a lot too because that's um, a mental thing for me of like, oh, I need to keep this <laughs> For future reference, so I have so many things bookmarked. So uh-huh, it's great to know uh-huh. that it's great yes. to know that your Instagram yep. has like a place of bookmarks so yep. that I could yes. just go and find. <laughs> yes, yes. Same, 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 same. No, we'll definitely link up some of your stuff in the description of your episodes so that our listeners could go and check out uh, those resources, and if local to you, that they can check out maybe yeah. your next. Playdates, yeah, which would be so exciting. Awesome. Get some new people involved. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think the other thing too, kind of resource-wise, is just the mental health and motherhood, especially mental health and medical motherhood, because a lot of the time we don't have a place or space to talk about the anxiety or the PTSD or the trauma, the depression that comes along with, you know, the expectation versus reality, the the birth trauma we went through, like all that stuff. And if you don't process it, it comes up in other ways, you know, nightmares, flashback, like whatever that looks like to you. And so I'm actually on my channel holding a lot of new mom guests that are just coming out from the NICU that because I remember when I came out, there wasn't a place that I could just share my story front to back, you know, it was little snippets, but there's such healing and retelling and sharing your story. And like, even I had one this week where she's like, this is the first time I'm like telling it front to end. And I'm remembering things that I forgot about as I'm retelling it. And so there's such power and healing in in being able to have that opportunity. Do you think when you're able to, because I imagine it's probably hard to do this, but do you think when you're able to completely detach kind of yourself from the mother part of it and just be kind of like 
therapist, counselor, social worker in your head, what other advice might you give to parents that are going through this, whether they're in the early stages or not? What do you, what do you think some of the key yeah. things that you've learned since your journey? I had a very traumatic birth delivery. I had a placenta abruption and no um, symptoms at all. I was in the C-section, emergency C-section for an hour and a half versus three hours because I lost probably two liters of blood. Uh, my blood pressure was 60. Yeah, we're both lucky to be alive. And so the p- advocacy piece of postpartum, you know, usually it's you have maybe one follow up and then again in six, six to eight weeks and then you're the cleared. And it's almost yeah. like, you know, throughout your pregnancy, you get all these checkups and it's all about the baby. And then as soon as you empty your canal, you're just a vessel, you're, you're just mom now, like, but your body's healing, your mind, you're sleep deprived, a lot of postpartum depression, anxiety, and sleep deprived in that we were feeding G-tube feeds every three hours through the night too, you know, and then uh. upright for an hour after that. And so I requested to meet with that provider, um, the OB, I had probably three or four appointments with her after we cried that first follow-up appointment with her. She wanted to see me right after discharge and I got a chance to thank her and ask questions. And so, you know, a lot of those postpartum visits, you can request more. If you need more support, don't just go for the physical, go for the mental too, the emotional. If you're Mm -hmm. struggling, talk to somebody. They have the questionnaire screeners that determine. And it's so hard to determine, okay, is it depression? Is it anxiety? Your hormones are out of whack? You're sleep deprived? Like trying to weed through, but usually there's a time frame of, but if you're having thoughts of suicide or self-harm or anything like that, seek help um, and go through your doctor is probably the first point of contact for that. Um, And there's probably support groups out there on that piece too. And for me, I think for the trauma narrative and retelling your story, there's pros and cons. You really have to be ready for it. You know, you can, I actually went to two or three therapists <laughs> after discharge throughout my NICU experience. And they say like, like doctors make the worst patients or whatever. They, Same for therapists. <laughs> like if you've never been to therapy, shop around, you know, you don't hurt therapist feelings if it's not a good fit this is about your healing and your growth and if you're continuing to go some like the people pleasing if you're going to somebody that's not helpful or you're not comfortable with you're not healing you're not um you're not going to be able to feel comfortable to do the work you have to be really comfortable with that person so shop around take a few sessions word of mouth um you can request and advocate you want a female you want a male like whatever that looks like. Therapy should not cause anxiety. No, <laughs> it should not. No. <laughs> or dread, or yeah. it should be like this self-care, like this mental self-care. Yeah, I, I'm a huge advocate for like everybody should go to therapy. I, I started going to therapy, I think Cyrus was around three months old and never looked back. I was like, nope, this is, yep, this is great. <laughs> well, and what a gift you're giving to your child. A healthy mind and body for a mom, you can be present and not pass along any stuff or, you know, a lot of people um, that I've seen too, just statistically like trauma, you find different coping devices. Some are healthy. Some can be drugs. Some can be alcohol. And like that impacts your future, your, your child too. And so you're doing the hard work now 
to help, you know, give your child a, a safe, you know, healthy space too. For me, the, the greatest thing that I've gotten out of therapy is being able to separate my trauma from Cyrus's trauma and then being able to work on my trauma without involving Cyrus, if that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like I've no, been able totally to focus on my trauma and what triggers me and, and, and separate that and respect Cyrus, respect his trauma and respect his boundaries and all that. And because I, I've separated the two, like I've been able to heal so much because I'm not trying to fix his trauma. You're not carrying that. Because I can't, yeah, yeah. I can't yeah. fix his trauma, right? Like I can't, I can't fix that, but I can fix mine. <laughs> and that's really what therapy has, has really helped me do. And it, I, gosh, if there's one thing I would hope any parent can do that that goes through this is is to know that there is a separation of, of trauma to some extent. I mean, they're 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 intertwined. I'm not going to say they're not, um, but if you can just focus on your trauma and start that healing process, yeah. For me, especially anxiety, especially in the medical, I resonate when you said reflux was your trigger, and like, I don't if my if Luke is going through a. a uh, reflex I don't need to be hover smother mother are you okay like I don't need to be putting my anxiety on him because yeah. anxiety is one of the most contagious feelings you know yes it took a long time for me to not do that with Cyrus <laughs> yeah. I mean like literally the last year <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah my husband and I both as soon as like the reflux or the vomiting or especially when we're out in public and I start like getting hot and I'm like <gasps> and I'm like red as a tomato yeah. <laughs> it takes a long time to retrain your brain but mm -hmm. your body too it's all yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. not their fault I had to sit back and I was like this is triggering for me because I can't help him but it's yeah. not his fault and if I'm coming at him from a place of anxiety he's going to think he's doing something wrong and he's not. And yeah. then especially after Alden was born, mm -hmm. I was like, if he's going to see us react differently to Alden having a stomach bug or yeah. vomiting or anything like that. And then we're not as anxious because it doesn't happen as frequently. But then with Cyrus, we're super anxious. He's going to internalize that and he's going to be like, what did I do wrong? Yeah. And then that just That's makes true. things worse. <laughs> like then he's vomiting even more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I applaud both of you that you have gone on to have second children <laughs> because I'm in this place too. Like I always wanted a big family, like three kids, my husband too, because he was an only child, but like the trauma and like, so my delivery, I was monitored. I was a kind of high risk pregnancy. I was monitored that morning at 11 and the non-stress, he scored 10 out of 10 practice breathing by five, six hours later, I'm in the ER. Wow. Yeah. And so I'm like, I don't know if I can, like, I know I need to do a lot more processing and trauma work and anxiety to even think about having another kid because, and just the what ifs of like, what if my, the next kid has any, what if we're in the NICU again? What if, like, I don't know if I could handle that. So I, that's probably another topic, but I'd so be curious to hear from you both of like, when were you ready? Like what, what you never. know? <laughs> okay. Never, never ready. <laughs> Uh, just ready. throwing that out there. Okay. I was never fucking ready. Okay. Um, I just had this feeling mentally. I was still struggling with a lot of things. I still am struggling with a lot of things and it's been very hard adding another child to the mix, but I just had this gut feeling that internal voice 
it was just a random day and it was like, dude, yeah, like yeah. go have another. Yeah. <laughs> and I just said, fuck it. We're going to fucking do this shit because if I try to plan this and I try to, you know, I, I try to, if I thought too much about it, I was definitely going to scare the shit out of myself yeah, and yeah, just walk yeah. away, you yeah, know? Yeah. And I really, there was a lot of just trusting that inner voice that just kept yeah. saying to me, you want more, go have more. And I, I I think there was certainly a level of mental healing that happens. I, yeah. I can't exactly pinpoint a particular thing that happened that, that made me feel like I could handle it. But there was just this inner voice that just said, hey, you could do this. Go do it. And I just trusted that. I just kind of went with it. Yeah. And it definitely was the greatest decision. But there is a lot of... I have made many posts about this that I, I do encourage trusting that, that inner voice and that gut feeling and trusting yourself. You know, you, as a mother, you've already been through so much and you're rocking it, right? Like, so there's what else could really I handle? Yeah, nothing else. I handle yeah, there's everything. nothing else that yeah. could happen. That's what it was for me and Kyle is that we were just like, we never thought we could do what we we're doing with no. Cyrus. My pregnancy was super, super healthy. Like he was healthy. Everything was great until it wasn't at delivery. And so literally up until he came out, we had all the intention that we were going to have a healthy baby and everything yeah. was going to be as easy as pie. And it wasn't. And and when we kind of started learning about the brain damage and, and the possible outcomes from that and all that, it really kind of got to like, how are we going to do this? And then we just did because we yeah. really didn't have yeah. a choice. So when it came time to kind of sitting back, processing and being like, Cyrus deserves a sibling, even though he's disabled, he still deserves that aspect of family. And it, it was a really, you know, I, I have a sister, my husband has a brother. And so we wanted that. And we were like, his disability should not, define. not be what yeah. holds him back from having that experience. I love that. We had the same thing as Courtney. Like, what if, like, same thing as you, Jen. Like, what if something goes wrong? What if we're in the NICU again? What if we have another baby with HIE because we didn't know that we were going to have a first one and this and that. And we just sat back. And there was a moment when I looked at my husband and I was like, I'm prepared. Whatever happens to this baby, like, I've gone through it all, right? Like, yeah. what, we have a second baby that has medical complexities. Okay, guess what? I'm better off now knowing how to navigate that. Yeah. We have a second baby that needs therapy. Like, we can navigate that. We have a second baby that goes into the NICU. We've done that. We're You're empowered. At that now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and so it was like, whatever is going to happen is going to happen, and we're more prepared now than we were with Cyrus, and we didn't think we could handle what we're handling and we are, and we'll handle a second baby no matter what the outcome is, and, and we'll be great. And, and Courtney and I say a lot. We say all the time, a healthy baby is not the end-all be-all. A living baby is what's important. Yeah. And especially like the three of us having all come really close to not having our babies, no matter what the medical complexities, no matter what the disabilities are, the living baby is the outcome that we all yeah, need. For sure. Right? For sure. I remember when the nurse told me his APGAR score. I had no idea what an APGAR was. Neither and the nurse I. randomly <laughs> told us one day, like, and it it was the thing that just made me ball, like have a breakdown in the NICU. His APGAR scores were one. Yeah, and then 20 too. minutes later, it was one or two or something. 
Yeah. Those numbers are ingrained in my head for life. Mine too. Yeah. One, yeah. four, six. I mean, yeah. one, four, six, one, four, six, yeah. one, four, six. Yeah. <laughs> and when you first see the APGAR chart, it really is traumatizing because when you, you want, when you actually are shown why it's graded the way it's graded and you're like, so pretty much like one in zero or like not alive. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Essentially. Yeah, we have like differentiating reports where Cyrus yeah. was either zero or one. I mean, he came out, he wasn't, he was blue, he was floppy. I have, I actually have a picture of him literally like in the midst of being put on my chest. And, and you can see he had a nuchal cord and you can actually see my thumb under the cord because when I was going through all like, I'm going to have a baby, I should research this. I heard nuchal cords are super common and all you got to do is unwrap that sucker. And so I was like, oh, look, he's got a cord around his neck. People do this all the time. I'm just going to shove my thumb under there. And I could barely get my thumb under because of how tight it was. And so there's actually the picture of me on the hospital bed and him coming out and I have my thumb underneath his cord trying to, to unwrap it and they ended up just having to cut it and unwrap it but yeah it's so he was either zero or one but when I yeah. think about that now I'm like oh god <laughs> like I had no idea back then you know he was he was that and then I remember they put him on the little warmer or whatever and I remember hearing like a couple squeaks if that from mm. him and then they took him out and I had no idea after that but yeah that's traumatizing yeah, and my husband's experience is so different because I was on the table and the epidural and I got nauseous. I was thrown up and just very in and out of consciousness. And I remember, like, I thought it was right after when they said, okay, he's out. And I thought I asked right away, but I guess my husband said it was like 10 or 15 minutes after I asked. I was like, I don't hear him. Is he crying? Is he, you know? And my husband asked, like, is he... And he looked at the anesthesiologist next to me who looked at the nurse that was taking and all he saw was the nurse shaker head no. And so that's really what he remembers in that moment. And even looking at pictures, it's a weird thing of like, uh, you almost feel shame of you don't have those newborn pictures. You don't have the skin to skin right after, but it's sad. It's feelings yeah, of sadness. Yeah. You can still see the bruises where he was resuscitated, yeah. you know? Yeah. And so it's even hard. His birthday will be end of July. He'll, he's a year. And so trauma anniversaries too. And I told my husband, I was like, you know, I'm celebrating me too. I'm survived. Yes. I survived. Uh, the yes, stuff we have done this year, I know it's about him, but he's still young enough to not know how to open yeah. gifts. Like I'm yeah. going to celebrate this first year. I, I always think the first year should really be reserved for the moms because mm -hmm. like Seriously. you it's not just the baby that's born right it's like a whole new person that yeah. you're born into becoming yeah. a mom and having to adjust to all that and yeah. like the first year should definitely I mean yeah good job kid but yeah. <laughs> first year, well, but even at that age what are they what are they doing to celebrate themselves they're not you know? gonna remember so why can't we just no. why can't we just put the focus on mama I'll you take know? a exactly. present I'll take right. some cake yeah yes, exactly like <laughs> hi I did that. Yeah. I, I, I grew all that, you know, for nine months or whatever. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to say, Jen, I honestly think I could chat with you two oh, I know. like for oh, I know. hours on end. <laughs> for hours. Yeah. And I, it just feels so natural. And I, I'm just so yeah. pleased to have, well, virtually met you, not really yeah. in person. Um, but I'm 
so pleased to have had you on the show today. And I really hope that you would come join us again and maybe discuss some different topics. I would love to. Yeah, I think it would just be so awesome. And uh, maybe one day we can all meet in person. That'd be so fun. (laughs) That'd be so fun. No, this was like very therapeutic for me too, just connecting with other moms apart from baby time. Like, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. And I would love to come on again in the future. We'll have you anytime you're ready. Because I think it'll be so helpful for other parents too, especially, you know, if anyone going through the NICU and who's in there right now, I feel like they would get so much out of this episode. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. we want to thank all of our listeners who tuned in to the Bitching and Bullizing podcast. You can follow Jen on her Instagram, Miracle Kids and Parent Support Network. It's wonderful. We love it. We'll link it down below, and you can just go straight there. And there's so much just great resources, and it's so inspirational. And I'm not even in the NICU anymore, and I still love reading all of it. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bitching and Bolusing podcast. Be sure to like and subscribe for future episodes. Previous episodes can be heard on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. If you like what we said, please be sure to give us a share. You can follow us on Instagram at Bitching and Bolusing. And you can visit us at www.bitchingandbolusing.com.